0: This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I'm excited to announce that I am joined by Gary Rappaport. Gary is the CEO of Rappaport Real Estate, retail real estate company founded in 1984. Um, he's been pretty iconic in the retail real estate industry. I'm excited for him to be here. Welcome to the show, Gary. Uh, thank you, Chris. So, Gary, let's start from the beginning. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and how you ended up where you have? Well, you know, Chris,
1: you know, earlier in my career, the last thing I thought I was going to be doing was uh, anything related to, to real estate. I come from New York and I was born in Brooklyn and and so are my parents. And I'm the first college graduate in my family. I have three younger sisters, the only son. Um, and my dad was a tie manufacturer with his older brother who was a shirt manufacturer. And what I learned as a young boy at 12 13 years old working in a factory in brooklyn was uh, top centers uh, french fronts darts yokes and everything about the fashion business Uh, Um, i um, never met a real estate person uh, until my senior year in college uh, and i thought i was going to go in the fashion business because that's all i knew um but i knew i was going to do something for myself i I grew up, um, my parents moved out to Long Island, to West Hempstead when I was two years old, and they bought a um, house on a 6,000 square foot lot and lived there for 48 years. And uh, my father's only loan in his whole life was a 30-year mortgage on his home. And the day that he paid off that mortgage was a very happy day in his life because he came um, and grew up in a different time period than I did. He grew up, it was born in 1921, sold ice cream on the beach in Coney Island, and had to give all the money to his mother and father. And because of it, um, he grew up with a lot of fear of having a roof over his head and food on the table for his family, and thus had a different outlook than, than I did. The neighborhood I grew up in, which in, and the reason I'm spending so many minutes right now at the beginning of this podcast on this because it sets the tone of how my life has been set. I grew up in a neighborhood where almost everybody was an entrepreneur of some uh, part of their life. One, one uh, someone was an, uh, a lawyer, a, um, an accountant, a shopkeeper, an undercapitalized manufacturer, uh, as my father was, of ties but everybody was somehow working, almost everybody working for themselves. And so I always had this desire to take that risk and work for myself, uh, whatever business that I was in. And what happened is I graduated uh, Syracuse in 1971 and ended up after school, uh, getting married at the age of 21. Uh, My first wife, I was married 10 years. I was not they're not married for 15. I'm now married for 27. And we all get along. We all travel together. I have five daughters, eight grandchildren. And my first wife was a Washingtonian. And so I ended up moving to Washington in 1973 and started in the real estate business as a um, small home builder. Um, and then eventually moved
0: into the commercial side of the business. Small home builder, huh? What, what time frame is this when you were building homes? Well, um,
1: the uh, two families put together two son-in-laws when I was 23 years old in 1973, I was born in 1950. And we put together a company and built uh, a couple of hundred single family homes between 1973 and 1981. My partner was more knowledgeable in the home building side, and I always came out with a very strong financial degree and in those eight years, we never had an office, but we went from job to job and we built homes until nineteen eighty one when I said, this is the wrong model, and I need to move from a model of selling everything to buy to going into into some part of real estate where I would not en- have an opportunity over a lifetime to build long-term assets and stability that the home building business did not offer me.
0: Got it. Um, that's fascinating. And it that's a stressful business, the home building business, you know, pretty, pretty stressful business when you're, you, you're, you're tired. Land, you got to build the houses. You got you got to flip them and make a profit. And it's uh, you know I don't you know you were building at a time where interest rates started to rise at that time, right? So that's a tough time.
1: Well, Chris, uh, in the um, in the times now, we're talking about high inflation, Uh, Treasury uh, five percent, a. You know, fixed rate 30 year mortgages on on homes are seven and a quarter and seven and a half percent, maybe even now closing up on 8 percent. Well, in 1981, prime was 20 percent. I was borrowing money at 22 percent. 30 year fixed rate mortgages on homes were 13 and a half percent. And nobody could afford to buy homes. And I knew my cost to the penny, but I could not control the largest line item of expense, interest rates or the interest rates of the buyers of my homes. And that's why I said, I'm leaving this business. I am creating no assets. Whatever I sell is going into a more expensive piece of ground. And I am going to learn the business of owning properties long term and letting them appreciate slowly over a lifetime and what it's done for me fortunately is it's created assets at this point in my life now that I've been in the business for over 50 years greater than I ever
0: expected or, or dreamed of so what what that's a great jumping off point so you, you leave home building walk us in how did you get to you know the commercial side and, and where did you start there
1: right well um, so we all have different roads that we've taken, and in my particular case, uh, I ended up working for a company called uh, Combined Properties, shopping center company here in Washington, D.C., and uh, worked there from uh, 1981 uh, to 1984, and um, had the opportunity to learn a lot about that business um, because um, I was... The family that was combined property was the Haft family, H A F T, Herbert Haft, and uh, he was my ex father in law. And so I ended up uh, taking over as chief operating officer in 1981, Uh, got divorced in 1982, ran the company as his ex son in law until 1984. And in 1984, I left there, handed over the reins of the business to the Uh, My ex brother in law Ronnie half, and started this company that I have now in a shared office space, a WeWork space, and bought my first shopping center, in on May thirty first, nineteen eighty four, where I raised thirty five thousand dollars from fourteen partners. I put in thirty five thousand dollars, borrowed half of my thirty five from one of my partners, and bought this center and. and renovated it and re it. And today, 39 years later, the center is 69 years old and we still own it. Amazing. Which center is that? It's called Milford Mill Center. It's on Liberty and Milford Mill Road. I bought a C minus center and made it into a C And wow. I'm proud today that the center still is a C plus center but a case study on the success of buying the right property at the right price, taking one's expertise to make it better and uh, and owning it long-term and let it slowly increase in value uh, over many years.
0: So talk about what you do today What and, and what should day to day look like today?
1: Well, let, let me say that um, what i've done the most important thing is in the model i've set. i've i've built a management company up for the stability of of the business model even though there's not great assets ever created within a management company we have 120 people here now i own the management company um and we are presently managing 76 properties 14 million feet, three and a half billion dollars of real estate, a little over 2,000 tenant leases, and I uh, have an ownership interest in about 40 to 45 percent of of that amount of property. We also represent about 75 retail tenants, and we also do the first floor leasing on over 100 high-rise residential, hotel, and office buildings. So the model has given us the ability to be the largest manager and owner of retail in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And we are not outside at all in what we own or manage than the states of Virginia, Maryland, and, of course, metropolitan downtown D.C.
0: Got it. And and so going back, so what do you what's your day to day look like today?
1: Well, I'd like to say I divide my life up into three parts. The first part, of course, most importantly, is my family. And in the business I'm in, I could set the times, whether it's during the day or the weekend or at night, to go to the activities that my children and grandchildren are part of, and I've done that my entire life. That second half is the business. I love it, I'm passionate. I'm 73 years old and I'm working every day And I get up every day. I exercise. I come to work. I work a full day and I do that every day. But the most important thing I do is this third third. And that third third is to help others. I have been mentoring people since I started in business, as my father taught me. And I end up talking to anybody for as long as they wish every day of my entire life. And I teach for the last 35 years, and as you know, I've written several books. As an example, last night, I was at the University of Maryland teaching a class to the Real Estate Club. Three weeks ago, I was at the University of of Michigan in Ann Arbor teaching a law school class on structuring partnerships and having lawyers be educated how they want to maybe spend their career, and maybe six weeks or eight weeks ago, I taught a master's program of real estate class at the at Georgetown University here in Washington. So that third of helping others to reach their dreams, I like to say, sooner than they would otherwise might have reached their dreams, is a very satisfying and uh, part of my life.
0: That's amazing. Uh- that's amazing. A lot of teaching there. Some amazing schools you mentioned, and uh, I'm sure that they are lucky to have you uh, come do that. When when you talk about that middle piece, uh, when you talk about that business piece, how much of your time is spent on running the business versus real estate deals? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, in the you know, in, in giving you that summary, I've been in business now 40 years since we bought that first center on May 31st, 1984, and we own 36 properties, which means we own less than one a year that we've either built or acquired. So we're not, but we don't sell. Very rarely do we sell anything. So when we talk about this company, there is no person that's running acquisitions. I'm, I'm overseeing that with a strong group underneath me But I'm making those decisions if we should buy something or or build something, or I should sign a loan on on something. And while I am here every day in the office, there is a chief operating officer, there is a president, there is a chief financial officer, and I'm in effect, I have um, put together reports over a lifetime that have given me the ability to understand all that's going on. But I don't believe I'm operating this company or the 120 people every day. What what I'm doing as life has gone on more is we have two different types of institutional, uh, two different types of partners. We have institutional partners, and we have friends and family. Even though I've never had family to to give me to invest with me, so it's always friends. But over a lifetime of from those 14 partners in 1984, today we have over five. Hundred separate partners in thousands of units across these different shopping centers that we own. And a lot of my time is spending time with these partners, making sure that they're recognized how important they are to make sure we're transparent in giving them information and, of course, distributions, but more important that they have access to me and that they're ready to invest in the next deal with us.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for that insight. Let's move on to to today. And, you know, we're in this interesting time period, uh, which to me is is pretty fascinating because we have this, what I would call, I think it's one of the most rock solid times when it comes to the, the real estate fundamentals, occupancy of properties, High as it's ever been, NOI is rising. Demand is outpacing supply as construction across the country has been muted for the last few years. Yet we have this wildly disruptive capital markets driven by the the quick pace rise in interest rates. Um, and you know, what we don't own office. I don't know if you have any office buildings. Obviously, we're seeing some of the things that are going on in the office industry right now. Um, and there's you know and and the effects that might have on the on the sector but tell me about how you're thinking about the, the the climate we're in right now well it's surely
1: a dangerous time and most people in the industry have never experienced high interest rates before and they probably many have thought that there we weren't going to even have times like this or times that could even be worse than this Even though, you know, 2008 or 9, we definitely had issues as well. Um, You know, one has to plan for it and one has to recognize that sometimes one can take advantage of these times and sometimes one has to sit on the sidelines and be safe and try to make the properties they have as secure as, as possible. Yes, fortunately, we're in a sector right now that's doing very well and we don't have the problems of the office sector of both high interest rates and vacancies at the same time. But we have to be careful. And I am careful. And what I say as an entrepreneur, uh, I, I'm in a very uh, dangerous situation. I have lived my life where I have signed for personal guarantees, direct and contingent, greater than my assets from the time I was 22 to the time I was in my late 50s. And today, based on the model we have, I take great risk because one can't develop a property in the model I have. We're not a big public company. We're not a real estate trust. Every property stands on its own. There are no funds here. And because of it, uh, I have to be very careful that I, I I can survive over a lifetime and especially the bad times we're in now. And so the model I've set is to be ready for these times. Now, I've always liked to say that in bad times, you know, the cliche is you can make more money in bad times than good times. And that's true. And I always hope to be a opportunity buyer instead of a distressed seller during bad times. Right. Um, unfortunately, in the past, most the bad times, I have either sat on the sidelines or I've been a distressed seller. This is the first time uh, in my career that I have an opportunity to be uh, an opportunity buyer. And so there are properties for sale. The cap rates are definitely higher than they have been in many years. Initial returns are lower, but there's still still deals to be made. And there's still lots of money uh, that one can create in times like this. But one needs to be very careful and not get over you know, their skis in recognizing that if one um, has to balance that risk and if one doesn't feel comfortable in a particular deal, uh, then one needs to stop and wait for the next opportunity and not, not get hurt.
0: Got yeah. well, sage advice. Always better to be an opportunistic buyer than a distressed seller. It's a good line. Um, Well, that was super helpful. Loved learning about your story. Why don't you tell us about your book? Yeah. Well, about um, 35
1: years ago, um, ICSC came to me and asked me if I would teach a class at the um, University of Shopping Centers. Um, And um, I put it. together on what I do every day, which is, uh, putting deals together, uh, building or acquiring a center, leveraging the money I have by raising money from others and sharing cash flow and appreciation with my partners so that they receive a return relative to the risk they're taking. And I also can receive a return based on the risk, um, that I'm taking, uh, and, uh, But then in 2005, ICSC asked me to write a book on what I was teaching. And it took five years. And the book was published in 2010. And at that time, ICSC was in the publishing business. They published the book. They handled all that. And and we had the first book printed and the first book that ICSC ever printed with the author's picture on the cover. So I was very pleased and appreciative of what ICSE did. And then in 2013, they asked me uh, if I would print a second edition. And that took three years. And we printed that one in 2016. And again, ICSE published that book. And then at the beginning of COVID, uh, ICSE, while no longer in the publishing business, also discussed the possibility of writing a third edition. Um, talking about COVID, talking about inflation that was coming, talking about new case studies that I had learned and the experiences that I had lived through during COVID. And I decided to do that. And writing a book is really hard for me. When I think and I tell people, think about how long and hard it is to write a, um, a two page email or a 10 page um report but a 600 page book takes every night while you're sitting on the couch at home possibly watching TV and multitasking to write to write a book um, with the help of a lot of other people here uh, but we wrote it and we went to forbes and Forbes is considered one of the best business publishing companies in the country and they agreed Yeah publish the book for me so I have paid all the costs for publishing the book and all the proceeds are going to the ICSC foundation surely I don't want anyone to think I'm writing a book in a few dollars I'm writing the book for the same reason that I've been teaching this long I say if I can help someone reach their dreams sooner than they can reach them then I've done something special with my life. And what that book is teaching people, generally young people in their 20s, 30s and even 40s, that if they leave what they're doing and go out and try to do what I'm doing as a true entrepreneur, taking great risk for great return. then this book educates them how to share cash flow and appreciation, how to raise money from partners, how to structure these deals. And whether one that does it in the retail business, which of course is what I'm writing about, in effect the same thing I'm teaching, can be done by someone in any other sector of real estate as well. By an example, while the case studies might be buying a shopping center, renovating, expanding, remerchandising, <laughs> creating value by having money, TI and TA, and roof repair. It can be just as much used by a young person in the residential business buying a 10-unit apartment building and fixing the carpeting in the hallways, the lighting, redoing kitchens and baths, creating more value, and sharing that upside of cash flow and appreciation yeah. with one's partners. Yeah. And that's what, these books are. that's what this third book that just came out on this past month uh, uh, does for young people have a dream to one day, I do.
0: Amazing. And for everybody, what's the name of the book?
1: Well, it's called Investing in Retail Property. It's the third edition. Uh, it can be purchased on, um, you know, Barnes and Noble and Amazon and Walmart and um, Target and many other sites as well. And all the proceeds go to the ICSC Foundation.
0: Fantastic. While the proceeds go to the foundation, one of the things that I, I heard someone say once before is that an entrepreneur, not in real estate, but branding leads to wealth and getting your name out there and branding. And I think it's a, I think it's amazing uh, that you've written three books. Uh, I, have, you know, it's a fascinating uh, concept. Clearly, you're helping a lot of people. That, that's fantastic. But I think it's it's also earned that you, you have this, you know, place in the ICSE industry with, you know, uh, and you're so well regarded to that they asked you to do this. And it's out there that you are the one who did this for ICSE when it first happened in the early 2000s. Well, thank
1: you. I appreciate those kind kind words.
0: Yeah. So, um, well, that's great. So the last thing that we typically do on here is we and. You, you probably have a million, but whether it's a, a case study or just a story of any deal that you've ever, that means something to you that you think is interesting, I'd love for you to tell a story on any type of deal you've worked on because, you know, it sounds like you've, you've worked on a gazillion types of deals, whether it's a partnership deal, whether it's a, you know, buying a property, whether it's a leasing deal, you've been involved in Deals galore. So I'd love to hear a deal story.
1: Well, let let me start off by people saying to me, Gary, could you do this again today as you started back almost 50 years ago? And I tell people absolutely. And I'm (laughs) bullish on not just retail, but real estate as a sector of our economy that allows a true entrepreneur who wants to take risk to go out. And create um, tremendous value for themselves, their family, and and their partners. I mean, I give great respect to someone who could start a car company uh, against the competition of, of that of that business and that sector. But but real estate's not as consolidated. There's such opportunity still out there. It's more complicated, maybe, but that just makes it better for the people that are detailed, educated. And are willing to take the risk. So I tell everyone, I would do the same thing again. I wouldn't change anything what I've done. I, I I'm not someone that that was, that came from a uh, a private school, a, uh, a an Ivy League education, and worked for any you know large big you know companies on Wall Street. I'm a grassroots guy that started raising money in small increments over an entire lifetime with a model that says slowly, carefully, over time, one could create long-term assets greater than one could, one could ever dream about as a young entrepreneur. And and so I'm not a merchant builder. I'm not looking for high returns in one or two or three years. And my investors are investing for the long-term, for their retirement, for their children. Um, and it's a different model than someone that's looking for uh, high returns and a quick turnover again and again and again. When I look at all my properties, I still go back to that first one as the model. I, I, I have a C minus property, I made a C plus, but I did a deal where I had a big back end promote, a preferred return to my investors and the equity that I put in, in 1984. But I returned everybody's money in 1989, and then I ended up refinancing it in 1999, just a little bit more, and took some of the cash out of a refinance, not a sale, and leveraged that into another deal. But then I also refinanced it in 2009, and I already financed it in 2019, and I hopefully am going to be healthy and alive, and I'm going to be able to refinance it in 2029. So the model is to slowly let the income go up every year. Let the appreciation, I'm sorry, let the amortization on the loan occur so that if you hit the bad times in one of these 10-year periods with high interest rates, you still have enough value in the property that while your cash flow might go down, you're not having a problem being able to refinance and you're not going to lose the property. And so when I teach the model of what I've done, I have to look back at that first shopping center 39 years ago and say that's the most important one. Even though if someone drives down the road, they might not look at it twice because of what it is, but it is a perfect example of what I do and why real estate is such a wonderful business to be in if one wants to take the risk of going out there and building or acquiring property for the long term
0: well yeah on that note that was amazing thank you for taking us through that i want to take us to the last part of the show i've got three questions for you are you ready yes all right these are five questions question one what extinct retailer do you wish to come back from the dead
1: um well you know the one i'll mention i don't think anybody in this podcast is ever going to remember unless they read my book because in the beginning of the preface there's a picture of me in front of this store in in Hempstead New York called Abraham and Strauss it was called A&S it was a department store and it was where my mother took me to buy my clothes before I was a teenager and it it shows Uh, It has a remembrance to me of of happy times, uh, of buying things um, in a store that while the market keeps changing, stores come and go. Um, If that store was around, I'm sure it was owned by one of the big, you know, major department store companies that are maybe still around today. But that particular store is not. But I have very fond memories of Abraham and Strauss, called A and
0: Amazing, very cool. So, second question: What is the last item over twenty dollars that you actually bought in a store?
1: What you know, I don't. I I, I paid for it in the store. Uh, but I don't think I picked it up. So here's how things have changed, and and I went into um, I went into the mall, Tyson's Corner, and I went into a store called Soma, S O M A, to to uh, buy a gift for my wife. And how things have changed. Um, I went in and I was able to see this the the, the, the uh, particular a piece of clothing I wanted to buy, but they didn't have it in the color and size that I wanted. The person in the store goes over to their iPad, quickly hits a couple of buttons and says, we have that piece in the color and size you want in the warehouse. You can buy it right now and you'll have it in your house tomorrow morning before noon. And I said, you have a deal. And of course, I bought it. When you think about how retail, I love retail. It is the most exciting sector, the most detailed sector, what I call the sector with the best risk versus return adjustment because it's so difficult if you're good at it. And when I think how fast it moves and how exciting it is, this example is exactly what wasn't there in the past, but is what retail is today. When we talk about the the, the mutual complements of the internet and bricks and mortar stores and warehousing and front of store and back of store, that example shows me exactly why retail is here to stay. It's not going away, and it's just going to get better as we balance and complement all the different sectors of real estate together to make. Something exciting for all of us, and what this did is it got my wife uh, a, a present that she otherwise might not have gotten, but but she got because of what retail is today
0: amazing. Okay, last question If you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what I would I find you, you know? Um, I love
1: puzzles, and huh. I I and I love specifically Ravensburger puzzles They're because they're cut in a certain way that the pieces are relatively easy to put together. And during COVID, I must have put together two dozen puzzles of a thousand pieces each. Now I don't do the puzzles that are 5,000 pieces or the ones that are 250. But these puzzles that are a thousand pieces somehow fit exactly what I want. And so I would sit during some of the evenings during COVID, even though I went to work every day during COVID, I never worked from home. I always went to the office, but at night I would sit there at times when I wasn't writing the book and I'd be watching TV in front of this big table with a thousand pieces and I would be doing these puzzles. And then when I finished them, I would turn them upside down and I would tape them so that they would always be there. So I now sit at my house and in the room that's my exercise room, I've got a couple of dozen puzzles, each one a thousand pieces each on the wall of this period of time that I did during COVID. So when I look to buy something or I go in a store, even you like Target. And while of course, you can buy them online, I go to the store, I go to the back of the store where the puzzles are, and I look and see what are the newest Ravensburger puzzles that are available for purchase. And that's what I would purchase if I went to Target again today.
0: Wow. What an amazing answer. Uh, you're the first to say the puzzle section. So I, uh, I really appreciate it. Gary, this has been great. What didn't I ask you that I should have? That you might want to tell everybody i
1: i i think the the most important thing i said was if somebody um wants to further talk to me i am always available you know my email address gdr gary dennis rapaport at rappaportco.com, or just google my name and send me an email or send something to the corporate website and say, I'd love to have a Zoom call with you. I will talk to anyone who feels that it's worth their time to talk to me. I will try to help anyone to reach their dreams, further their career. And I will always find the time to do it. Because I think anyone could find the time to do whatever they want to find the time. And I always find the time. And then when I say to people, if I help you, then one day you make sure to help someone else.
0: I, you know, that's a great line because I thought, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought you might say, if I help you one day, hopefully you'll help me. But I loved how you said one day you help someone else. That is a really great line. Chris, it's been a pleasure to, to talk with you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold, If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives, so it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.